Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 363, Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth on Mere Social Trinitarianism and Eternal Relations of Origin, Part 2. In this second half of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth, we get deep into the depths of his new article called Mere Social Trinitarianism, The Eternal Relations of Origin and Models of God. I think you'll enjoy this interesting discussion of divine attributes how these relate to some Trinity theories, and even some Protestant methodological points. Dr. Hollingsworth, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for having me on again, Dale. Glad to be here. So last time we talked about this acronym you use, DERO, D-E-R-O, which has to do with just eternal generation and procession. And you point out that if divinity implies timelessness, then this eternal generation and spiration are also going to have to be timeless processes or timeless causings. So do you in fact think that divinity entails timelessness or being outside of time? I personally don't think so. I don't think this idea of divine timelessness or atemporality, as some prefer to call it, I don't think this is really taught anywhere in Scripture, the Mm -hmm. Old or the New Testaments. Nor am I convinced that it's really that coherent an idea with other Christian doctrines, uh, in particular creation ex nihilo and the incarnation, especially with creation ex nihilo. I just don't know how to say there's a state of affairs in which God exists all alone. There's a state of affairs in which God exists with the universe and how that is not both A, a change for God mm-hmm. and B, a temporal succession or a temporally successive change. I just don't know how to make sense of that. Mm-hmm. I claim that God exists alone without the universe. It seems like you would have to have some kind of eternal creation to make sense of that and to have a timeless God. Mm-hmm. The same with the incarnation. Um, I just don't know what it means to say, especially in this kind of connects to the creation, if God exists without the world, clearly God's not incarnate. But if God exists with creation, at some point in the creation, God's incarnate. I just don't know how to make sense of those claims apart from God being temporal. And I know some people may hear this and be shaking their heads. And, and so, you know, I read Thomas Aquinas and Augustine on this over and over. And I've also read their current interpreters, such as Paul and others. And I, I just don't buy it. I don't find these defenses plausible. And I just don't see them as lining up with what the New Testament has to say. And unless we are part of an ecclesial tradition that sees some sort of intrinsic authority to the church's tradition, creeds and such. I, I just don't see a good reason to think that God is timeless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, on the face of it, God always has existed and God exists now and always will exist. And that's, that's not timeless. That's temporal eternity. Right. And also just to clarify now in the paper, I don't take a position on this. I'm going to give options for how you could affirm that God's timeless and have the processions. But I also give some possibilities of, hey, could you be a divine temporalist and have the processions? Well, maybe, but not in any classical sense of the processions or the mm-hmm. or the Darrow, as I call it in the paper. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, I don't see the biblical warrant for this view I really don't see much of the philosophical warrant for it either in light of other Christian doctrines that we're committed to. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so eternal generation and procession, you know, arguably they're very central to small C Catholic Christian theologies. But nowadays, a lot of informed scholars think that these claims have no support in Scripture. And sometimes they're also rejected because they imply that the Son and the Spirit lack the divine attribute called aseity. Do you agree with these two objections about no support in Scripture? I think you just said you did agree with that. And what about the the one that it implies basically ontological subordination for two of the three persons? I do tend to agree with these. And the move you typically see amongst contemporary philosophers and theologians is that they'll try to say something like this. Aseity is an attribute of the divine essence. It's not a notional property. So while the father is ingenerate, it's acceptable that the son is generate, that the sons, that the personhood of the son does not have aseity, but the son is still assay in the fact that it just has the, you know, the divine essence. But I find this to be a very difficult claim because again, on this classical view, the persons are numerically identical to the divine essence. But so it just doesn't make any sense to me to say, well, the father who is numerically identical to the essence is ingenerate. The son who's numerically identical to the divine essence is generate, is caused. So the father in his personhood has a seity. The son in his person lacks a seity. But so the son somehow is assay in his essence, but not assay in his person. But I don't know how to make sense of that if the person is identical to the divine essence. Mm-hmm. I just that just seems like a clear contradiction to me. Yeah. So I, I do tend to agree with that. Um and just this entire doctrine of the Dara, I don't make this argument in the paper, but these are my my personal views. I don't think the Dara really does have biblical support. I think it's based primarily on exegetical errors by the second century Christian apologist that kind of just gets adopted and passed along through the centuries. Kind of like how Plato's axiom that all changes for the better or for worse. I can think of a few examples of how that just doesn't necessarily hold true, but it kind of gets adopted in much of the ancient philosophy and theology and, pa- and passed along almost yeah. uncritically. Yeah. For example, in the Apostolic Fathers, uh, Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the Ephesians has no problem referring to the Son as unbegotten in his divinity, Agianitos, and though it is staple of the Son's identity from the mid-2nd century forward, that the Son is begotten both in divinity and his humanity. So I even then from some of the people that we would say were there's evidences of not Trinitarian formulae, but Trinitarian understandings of God prior to this. Well, this, this idea that the son is, you know, it's a staple of his identity is to be begotten of the father eternally. It's just not there. It's not in the apostolic fathers at all. And I think that the new Testament use of this begotten language that the second century apologists and the, the, the second and third and fourth century theologians are picking up on. And they're making this about, uh, what some scholars call the imminent trinity is God is in of himself apart from creation. I think this is just a misinterpretation. I think this begotten language in the New Testament, especially for, for John's literature, doesn't say anything at all about the imminent trinity. I think this is economic Trinitarian language. I think this is language that's used to describe Jesus as being Israel's Messiah. When we look at Psalm 2, which is one of the most often quoted passages, you know, today I've begotten you. Well, at least in the case of that psalm, that has to do with the enthronement of David. This is ascension language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think that what John is talking about when we start seeing this begotten language use of Jesus, this is the, the gospel author's way, who is a first century Jew thinking in these first century Jewish categories. 
This is his way of defending Jesus's claim to be the Davidic Messiah, the rightful king, the heir to the throne of Israel. I think that's what it's getting at. So I just don't see these pre-creation, pre-existent, imminent Trinitarian concepts as present in this begotten language at all. But this idea that this is it has to deal more with Jesus, you know, messianic claims than his divine claims. You just don't see this at all in the patristic writings or any of the commentaries. And I find that very interesting because, you know, perhaps I'm just too influenced by some of what this boogeyman, the new perspective on Paul. But when I read the New Testament and I try to think of how does a first century Jewish person think about these things and hear this language, it seems clear to me that this is a, a Davidic echo. This is not a pre-existent imminent Trinitarian echo in these texts. That's my personal opinion, and I'm sure plenty of people think I'm wrong on that. Beginning with low-hanging fruit, once you accept the whole Logos theory framework, which triumphed in certain circles in the 100s and then eventually was completely almost taken over the mainstream by the 300s. Right. And I know many theologians think that um, John is borrowing Philo's doctrine of the Logos um, in his his writings, Philo Mm -hmm. of Alexandria. A good friend of mine who's one of my colleagues, he's an adjunct professor at Bruton Barber College, Dr. Mark Cooper, wrote a master's thesis on this. He's a New Testament scholar, agreeing that John is using Philo's concept of the Logos. I just don't think John is doing that. Mm-hmm. I think John's yeah. doing something different with the idea of, of Logos than what Philo is doing, than what the Stoics are doing with the Logos and their yeah. philosophy, and what the subsequent second century apologists are doing. It's all wisdom literature stuff in John, in my view. Yeah, I think it's wisdom literature, and I, and I think it's Torah. I think that they just have in mind that he's identifying Jesus with the very creative word of God by which he is creating the universe. Now, I think that this does obviously get personified more in the New Testament, because I am a Trinitarian. That's a different debate to hold. But I don't think it's this idea of you know, how God's reason is always with him, and yada, yada, this rational principle of ordering of the universe and such. I don't think there's as much there as the second century apologists are putting in there. Mm. The second century apologists and specifically their commitment to Lagos speculations are really foundational in small C Catholic theorizing, but a lot of Mm -hmm. it tends to get forgotten later on by the time you get into the Nicene controversy. Or ignored. (laughs) Generally, in general, the subordinationism is just, just disappears out of it. Right. But I mean, speaking of that, I mean, the objection that generation and procession imply the subordination or the ontological lessness of the Son and Spirit, there is a traditionalist answer, which you can find some scholars today defending, which is from the Cappadocian Fathers. They would say, hey, look, we just define that divinity does not include aseity. That's crazy Arian stuff. We don't like that. And Mm -hmm. so we're just telling you that divinity doesn't include aseity. So therefore... There's no problem with one being passing on divinity to another and therefore existing because of the first. Why not that answer? I guess because I think aseity is just a pretty clear, even though it's not called aseity, I think it's a clear biblical teaching that God is a necessary, that God has always existed. And I think it's also including the idea of being a perfect being. Mm-hmm. If God is a necessary being, he has, I don't see how he could be any other way but say. Yeah. There's a newer move that I, I have found to be more interesting. Um, I don't buy into it, but Joshua Sijawadi and his work on understanding the eternal processions or the, the Darrow in terms of grounding relations. 
he does think that the father has a satiety and that God has a satiety, but he doesn't think that a satiety is an intrinsic property. He thinks it's an extrinsic property. And he tries to take the same approach to that, that David Lewis takes saying how loneliness is not an intrinsic property. It's an extrinsic property. In order to be all alone, you have to have a relation to something else or a lack of relation. So it's still contingent on something outside of the lonely thing. And uh, I don't buy that because I I just really don't think that works for something like a satiety. Metaphysics is a heck of a drug. It, it is. Um, it's only wrong. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun drug too. It's, 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 one of my, it's one of my drugs of preference. It's my only drug of preference. Metaphysics and scripture for those of you who don't, not really on drugs, but, but yeah. So I find this interesting. I just don't think it holds sway. And as I've said before, that unless one is committed to a, an ecclesial tradition that sees some sort of intrinsic authority in the church's theological traditions, I just don't see, per- this again, personally, this isn't in the paper, I don't see a good reason to just maintain this doctrine in light of the lack of biblical warrant and the many metaphysical problems that it faces, because it does end up saying the Son's yeah. Spirit lack of safety, which seems to be, okay, well, if they do, well, then Dale Tuggy's right. They're not truly divine. Well, if divinity implies aseity, then it would be the kind of property that in principle just couldn't be given by another. Right. I agree with that. And so that's, and that's another issue I take with this doctrine of the processions on a personal level is that the processions are supposed to be the means that by which the father communicates the divine essence to the son and the spirit. But if it's part of the divine essence to be, I say, then like you said, how is society something that can be communicated to something else? But again, those are more personal differences. I don't bring those up too much in the paper just because my goal is to give options. You know, if you're a social Trinitarian and you want to have these processions, here's what you're going to be committed to by way of the divine attributes and models of God. Yeah. And if God is timeless, the processions will have to be timeless. Right. When the Trinity's podcast returns... We discuss some difficulties for what Dr. Hollingsworth calls Darrow relating to time. friend Ryan Mullins, the analytic theologian, has argued uh, in a very good book that Christians ought to reject divine timelessness. If theologians like Mullins are right, why can't a Trinitarian just say that for all the infinite past, at every moment of time, God the Father is causing the Son and Spirit to have the divine essence, and that he's doing it now, and this will just always continue. So, past, present, and future generation and procession, not timeless generation and procession. Why not go that way? Yeah, so some social Trinitarians who are divine temporalists have taken this route. William Hasker in particular makes this move. He and Mullins have had a, an interaction back and forth with one another over this issue in the European Journal for Philosophy of Religion. 
Mullins pushes back saying that if God is temporal, then if the father begets the son, then it seems to entail that the son begins to exist in time, which is one of the reasons the, the classical theologians of the fourth century wanted a timeless God. It's not why they wanted a timeless God, but in light of that, they were able to say, hey, this is why there's no subordination, because the son never begins to exist because it's timeless. He's caused atemporally, so therefore there's no subordination here. Ryan comes back with, well, if we do make them temporal, well, then it does seem that the sun begins to exist in time, especially if, you know, philosophers such as Swinburne and Paul Helmer, right, and that causes necessarily precede their effects, temporally speaking, then this is going to have to be the case. And Hasker fires back by saying, well, that's not necessarily the case. You know, if the father exists at T1 and the son's begotten at T2, well, then at T0, the father would exist and the son would just exist at T1 because he's being begotten at each and every moment of time for, for all eternity. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with that view because I'd, just by the very analogy, well, well, there is no T before T0. I don't think there is a T negative one. I don't even know what that would be. So it even seems then that if T0 is the first moment of time and the son's being begotten at T1, well, the son still begins to exist. So we still have this Aryan problem. But another issue that we have, if we say, we'll say that this is you say we have an infinite series of past temporal moments. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think Craig's example with Hilbert's hotel and stuff showing the, in, the metaphysical impossibility of transversing an actual infinite or there actually being an actual infinite of past moments. I think that that works. But let's suppose that it doesn't work. Let's suppose that there can be an infinite past series of temporal moments. Well, even then... We now we have a big shift in how we've understood the processions altogether, because you know, originally these processions have been understood as eternal relations of origin of the cause of the sun's being. But now it's not just an efficient cause anymore. If the sun's being begotten at each and every moment of time in the sense of an efficient causation, well, then either the sun is an eternally incomplete being and in that the sun's never truly begotten. Or the doctrine of the processions has changed to where it's not that the father is the efficient cause of the son, but now the father is the sustaining cause of the son, which I think has even grosser implications for the lack of divine aseity. And some are a little confused about this incompleteness charge I have. I've gotten to go back and forth with Hasker recently at a meeting for the Society for Philosophy of Religion on this issue. Suppose I'm writing a paper. I'm writing a paper at T1, T2, T3. Upon the completion of the paper, I'm going to stop writing that paper, right? I'm not going to keep writing the paper once it's complete. It's not necessary to continue writing on it. It would go over and beyond what the paper is intended to be. And uh, it could also, at best, be an overdetermination of the paper. But if the son is a completed being, you say if the father begets the son at T1, presuming the father's is a perfect absolute action and that the son's being is complete when he's begotten at T1, then why does the father need to continue to generate or efficiently cause the son at T2? Hmm. It seems that, well, he would need to do that because there was something missing from the son's being. But if there's something missing from the son's being, he's not a perfect being. So he's just by definition, not God. So, but if the son is a completed being at T1, then there seems to be no good reason to continue to cause the sun at T2. It would seem to be an overdetermination of being, to which some might say, well, why would that be a problem? Well, also implicit in the idea of a perfect being and also implicit in scripture, God's a perfectly rational being. He has a perfect, re- a good reason for doing everything that he does. 
So that would mean that there's a perfectly good reason for him to continue to cause the sun at T2. But maybe this is just my limitations as a human thinker. I, for the life of me, cannot fathom a reason what that reason might be to continue to cause the being at T2 if the sun is a perfectly existing being at T1. So I guess I just don't really know what it means for the father to be the efficient cause of the sun at each and every moment of time if the sun is a, is a complete being. Yeah, I'm not sure what I think about this. This is interesting. I mean, if you've already drunk the subordinationist Kool-Aid by having the father cause the son at just a single moment, then is it going to be much more of a cost to say that the son depends on the father for the son's existence at all the moments after? If you're content to say there's an ontological subordination of the son to the father, then it's no issue. But Hasker and others don't want to drink that Kool-Aid. Yeah. But Hasker explicitly says there is no ontological subordination of the son to the father. And I'm saying, well... First off, I personally think that even on an atemporal scheme, I still think that to say that the father is causally prior to the son is to indicate an ontological priority. Mm -hmm. So I still don't think that being timeless really saves us, but I'll grant for the sake of our classical thinkers that it does. But on the temporal scheme, I think it really has challenges. And I think that challenge is going to be there, even if we affirm things such as causes can be absolutely simultaneous with their effects. Even if we grant that, this problem still doesn't go away. And when talking with Hasker in person about this at this recent meeting, his conclusion was, well, that's the case. You know, let's take for another example, my begetting of my son, William. You know, when I generated my son, my son existed. I I don't generate him anymore because he's existent. He's whole. If we adopt that analogy to the father and the son, if the father generates the son, why does he need to keep doing it? The son's there. He's whole. There's no need to. And and Hasker's response was, well, that's the case for human persons. There's no reason to think there are for divine persons. I'm not personally satisfied with that. That seems a little ad hoc and, and special pleading, in my opinion. Perhaps I'm just one of those wicked analytic theologians who just wants to erode all mystery from God. Uh, <laughs> but Bad boy. Uh, I know. Um, did Hasker appeal to an analogy with creation? Because with creation, a lot of theologians will say it wasn't just a one-time thing, but God upholds the cosmos in existence at every moment after. You're saying that if God is in time, then generation and procession would be like that. It would be these unending processes that are never finished. That's what I'm claiming, and Hasker does not make that appeal. Hmm. But even so, I would still say that creation itself is just not complete. Obviously, history is still moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us it's not complete. You know, we're still waiting for the future kingdom of God that will mark creation's completion, where it is made right. In a recent book I edited on Pannenberg's theology, Ted Peters actually has an essay in there where he talks about how, in a sense, redemption is a part of creation. That by redeeming the creation, God is continuing to create and bringing to completion his creation. Yeah, there are purposes that haven't yet been fulfilled, so that doesn't yeah. sound too controversial. Yeah, so there's just this idea that uh, even creation itself is not complete. That would be the similarity that if God is temporally generating the sun, it is going to be a lot like this idea of creation continua, that God's continuing to create and move creation toward its completion. Yeah. Yeah, But even then, to say that there's never a moment of time that the father won't be begetting the son, well, that seems to imply this idea that even once creation is complete, that there's still something incomplete about the son. So it seems to entail that there's this eternally incomplete being 
in my opinion. And um, I've not seen, now I will say this, I've not seen this argument anywhere else as far as I know. This might be the one novel thing I have. And I push this argument further in a paper that's currently under review at a journal. I dial in more just on divine temporalism and the processions. And I think it's a real problem that needs to be overcome. And so uh, I do think there is a way to have a doctrine of the processions, the eternal relations of origin, and get out of this problem. But at this point, there's just nothing about it that's classical. If the two markers for the classical doctrine of the Darrow is that the eternal relations of origin are atemporal and they're causal, well, we've already gotten rid of half of that just by saying that they're temporal. But the other way that we might have it to where it's not a problem is we say, okay, let's throw out the causal idea of the processions. Let's do something like what Joshua Sidjawadi is doing and say that they're, they're metaphysically grounding relations. So like an example of this would be like in the same way that Socrates is the grounds for his singleton set. Socrates never exists without a singleton set and the singleton never won't exist if Socrates doesn't exist priorly. Socrates doesn't cause his set to exist, but he is the metaphysical ground for his singleton's existence. We might can say in an analogous way, the father is the ground of the son and the spirit. That would seem to eliminate this problem that the causal relations is going to give you. But even then, and in this other paper that I've under review, it's not very clear to me that it's going to eliminate the subordinationist problem. Yeah, It'll just eliminate this particular Aryan subordinationist problem of, you know, there's a time when the sun is not. It'll relocate the problem. It'll relocate the problem. Now, yeah, the sun can still be a complete being now, but it's still, but now we have to wonder if it's really eliminating the subordination problem. And mm-hmm. I don't get into that really in too many of my other papers. My suspicions are that it doesn't. It's certainly an interesting point and one that I haven't seen elsewhere that if God is timeless, then generation and procession are kind of a done deal. Not literally, but anyway, it's not an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. It's as if from our perspective, it it had already been done in the past. So it's not happening now. It's not going to happen in the future. And as soon as you make God temporal, it looks like the eternity of the generation and procession would have to be temporal and then it's really quite weird. It's not at all a done deal. And right. is that really quite what they meant to say? I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure that grounding is really the same doctrine as you know what the ancients were saying either, because as yeah. you point out, they seem to be using causal concepts. Yeah, and not just causal, but you know, someone at the that SPR meeting asked me, would it necessarily be efficient causation? And I and I think it is. It's because the other notions of Aristotle's causes just don't. Yeah, material cause, formal cause, final cause. No. Yeah, they just don't line up at all with what the fourth century fathers are claiming in this doctrine of generation. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it at all is what they would have wanted to claim. And, you know, Hasker has said in writing that there is no doctrine of the Trinity without these processions. Well, if that's the case, well, then it seems to me that if we have a temporal God, then we've got a real problem because the moves we've had to make to making it temporal and now potentially making it metaphysical grounding, this just isn't at all what the patristics would have recognized by what they were trying to say about these relations of origin. Mm -hmm. It might be the same thing in name, but what's being communicated is radically different. When the Trinity's podcast returns. Is the God of the Bible essentially immutable and impassable?
Well, let's shift gears and stay more classical for the moment. So you point out in the paper that timelessness implies essential divine immutability and impassibility. So if you're not in time, so to speak, you can't change. That's immutability because change involves a before and after. And Mm -hmm. passibility is basically being changed or moved by something outside of oneself, especially in the case of emotions. So God sees Mm -hmm. me going through a hard time and he feels compassion because of what he sees in me then he'd be passable. But impassibility, you might think it's for a couple of different reasons, but um, I agree with these implications. I think if you're timeless, you're going to have to also be immutable and impassable. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that the God of Scripture can't be those things. If there's a repentant sinner, then if God is moved by his humble repentance, then he's not immutable. If God forgives the sinner, then God changes from not having forgiven him to having forgiven him. I mean, this just doesn't seem to me like things that a Christian should want in a doctrine of God. What's your view about that? Yeah, so I've actually had a similar conversation with my buddy Josh Ferris about this, in that I don't know how to make sense of the atonement if God is immutable and impassable. I don't even know how to say that God's motivated for the atonement, because if God does have a motivation for atonement, it actually can't be human sin. That can't be the motivator. Something about God and his undisturbed state of perfect, immutable bliss motivates atonement. Mm. That seems like an odd thing to me, because the Old and New Testament seem to be quite clear. God's motivated to offer atonement for sins because God is not satisfied with the disfellowship with his creatures that sin brings about. Mm Mm-hmm. And God wants to restore that. Mm-hmm. So that just, I don't see that lining up with scripture at all. Now, I do affirm some sort of doctrine of immutability. I'm content to say God is immutable in his essential properties. Mm-hmm. That if God changed from being one of those essential properties, you know, aseity or, or eternal, <laughs> eternal in a temporal sense, or if or omnipotent, omniscient, etc., then he would cease to be God. This is what it is to be God. I, I have no problem saying that. But even then, I don't think that entails these hardcore doctrines. And I think that God, sure, prior to creation, I can say God was impassable when he was all alone prior to creation. There was nothing extrinsic to God to act upon God. But once God creates the universe and exists in a genuine relation to the universe, and you know, at a minimum, I think Craig is right, that even if God is timeless sans creation, then at minimum with creation, God becomes temporal. I don't necessarily affirm that view of God in time, but I'm saying even on that one. But once God becomes temporal in this genuine relation to the universe with free creatures, he get, kind of gives up, so to say, his impassibility. He gives himself to be impacted by his creation. So he wouldn't be essentially impassable. Right. If he has entered into a real relation with the universe, then he has given himself to be acted upon by it. Even, for example, once he becomes temporal, Now, it is true the case that because of his relation to creation, God exists at now, now he exists now, he exists now, he exists now, etc. Sure, I can say that without creation, God's impassable. I think that's trivially true. Mm -hmm. But at least since creation, God is neither impassable, immutable, nor is he timeless. And I do think that immutability and and impassibility are kind of entailed from God's being timeless. You know, as our friend, we've mentioned Ryan several times, as he would say, if God is timeless, you get those things for free. Yeah. So timelessness, immutability, impassibility, 
I don't think the average lay person cares very much about these things, but there is a certain type of theologian which says, hey, come on, this is what all the great minds in the history of Christian theology have said, Augustine, Aquinas, etc., maybe Calvin. There's an even more controversial divine attribute called divine simplicity. How does that relate to timelessness, immutability, and impassibility? Well, for Augustine and Aquinas, the way simplicity, before I define it, it relates to those, is that simplicity is actually, in my opinion, at least for Thomas, it's one of the, the primary motivators for these other doctrines. But one of the reasons they insist on God's being in, is because of his simplicity. But in case, uh, for those who don't know what simplicity is, to say that God is simple is to say that, one, God lacks all composition and is composed or made up of no parts, be those parts physical or metaphysical parts, such as properties. Two, there exists in God no distinctions, be those distinctions between essence and existence, act and potency slash potential, substance and attribute, essence and accident, genus and differentia, or form and matter. Three, it's to say that God is identical with all of his intrinsic features, and all of said features are identical with one another. So, <laughs> so, If you're trained in philosophy, your head is exploding right now with all the implications of this. But for an average person, to be like, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. I, I used to think I would hear simplicity when I was a seminary student. And I was like, yeah, it sounds good to me. That sounds like something a perfect being would be. Yeah. But then once I started learning more philosophy and learned that means God is identical with his omnipotence and mm-hmm. that his omnipotence is identical with his omniscience, which is identical with his aseity and his omnipresence. And then it gets into these weird things that if we think holiness is an essential property of God, I know some don't want to classify it as that, some do, but this would mean somehow that God's holiness is just identical to his omnipresence. And that these just all seem like weird things to say. And as many philosophers have pointed out, nicely, yeah. Omniscience and omnipotence just are not by definition the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that creates some problems, but simplicity, as I've said, for Thomas motivates these other three classical attributes of immutability and passability and timeless eternity. And the way it motivates them is that, again, simplicity entails that there are no distinctions within the divine essence, including temporal distinctions, or such as, you know, since God's essence is identical to his existence, well, if his existence undergoes change, such as existing at T1 and then T2, well, then just by definition, the essence is going to undergo change on this schema of simplicity. So, yeah, we can't have a God that changes. We can't have a God that's timeless because now we have distinctive portions of the divine life. God's identical to the divine life. So uh, that would mean that the divine essence is divisible. So we can't have that. So we need to get rid of immutability. Well, if God's immutable, then he can't be acted upon by something external. So impassibility has to go. And likewise, uh, God can't undergo succession, so temporality has to go. So in virtue of God's simplicity, he's immutable, impassable, and atemporal. So it looks like you could deduce those three from simplicity, but not necessarily the reverse. Right, yeah. This is why when I point out later in the paper, God's being timeless, you can deduce from that he is immutable and impassable. But simplicity doesn't follow from that because you could have God with distinct intrinsic properties that don't result in his being temporal, for example, or mutable or passable. So simplicity doesn't follow from those, though the others do follow from simplicity. 
Yeah, so you have a way of resisting this argument that says, if God's not simple, then he'll have multiple attributes, then he'll depend for his existence on these multiple attributes, but God can't depend on anything for his existence. How is it that you answer that kind of concern? It depends on what kind of dependence relation we have in mind, because oftentimes people, when they're talking about this, they seem to think that all kinds of dependence are like causal dependence, at least for my theologian friend, my fellow theologians, I should say. Mm-hmm. I'm a theologian by trade. I'm a mm-hmm. philosopher by choice. My theologian friends tend to think that all dependence is causal or metaphysical, that God is grounded in something extrinsic to God's self. And they tend to think that essential properties are things that we could just like pop off of God and detach from him and put him back together, kind of like puzzle pieces. Mm. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what a substance's reliance on its essential properties for its being are. I tend to follow this kind of more neo-Aristotelian notion that wholes are actually prior to their parts. And the kind of thing a thing is, is when to determine what kind of parts it's going to have or its properties even. And this leads us into talking about how substances can have counterfactual dependence relations to their parts. A, a counterfactual dependence relation says that it's the type of dependence that obtains between X and Y, just in case that if Y had not existed, then X would not have existed. And we can think of this again in that example I've given before of Socrates and his singleton set. Socrates' singleton set depends on Socrates for its existence, but not in any causal sense. Had Socrates failed to exist, then so would the singleton. But if Socrates' singleton didn't exist, then the implication is that Socrates doesn't exist. There's kind of this counterfactual dependence obtaining between the two there. And we can say the same thing about God and his essential properties, such as his omniscience and his omnipotence. Because God exists, these properties do exist. But if God didn't exist, then omnipotence or nor omniscience would exist. But if omnipotence nor omniscience would exist, this wasn't, wouldn't mean that they caused God to not exist. It would just mean de facto that God doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Does that, did I clarify that well, or do I need to give a little more breakdown of that? The gist of the move is that essential properties should be understood to be modes of the individual thing, ways the thing is, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the example I draw from Gregory Fowler and Matthew Badorf. It's ways God necessarily has to be. If you say, if God didn't have this, you're now off in the realm of a counterpossible, not just a hypothetical, but a hypothetical that couldn't possibly happen. Correct. And so it's not clear that God depends in any unfortunate sense for his existence on having these properties. It's just that he has to have these properties no matter what. Sure. I mean, it's kind of like saying this. It's like saying, I exist, therefore, my property of being a mammal exists as a result. I have the property of, of being a mammal because I'm a human. Well, yeah, and in the sense that I depend on that to be a human. Well, sure, but that's trivially true in my opinion. But it's not a causal relation. But also, I just wouldn't exist. I cannot exist as a human and not have that property. But the property of being a mammal doesn't exist apart from things that are mammals existing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this worry about God's depending on his parts to exist, I think this comes from a few fronts. One, a misunderstanding of how parts and wholes relate to one another, some misunderstandings in myriology. But also, I think it's a presuming that these properties might exist like in some sort of platonic realm apart from God that Mm -hmm. and I think that's a worry. I think it's a potentially a misunderstanding or it's an 
uncritical commitment to a particular theory of properties and how they exist and in what way they exist mm-hmm. um, that we don't necessarily have to be committed to. That's interesting. I find that plausible. When the Trendies podcast returns, Dr. Hollingsworth explains how all of this is relevant to social Trinitarianism. Okay, so if you're going to be a social Trinitarian, like we talked about last time, it looks like you can't believe in divine simplicity. I mean, one reason on the face of it is that some social Trinitarians, like Craig in some moods, thinks that the persons are literally parts of God. Sure. But then that's just against simplicity directly. But is there more to say about it even than that? Yeah, I think so. Um, If each person is a discrete center of consciousness or a distinct center of consciousness, they may not want to say it's discrete. Swinburne has no problem saying it's discrete. But suppose each person wants to say that they are a distinct center of consciousness, will, action, and love, then it's pretty obvious that their notional properties just cannot be identical with one another. Like their mental properties? Yeah, or the day say beliefs. So, for example, one center of consciousness is going to have the day say belief, I am the father. Another is going to have the day say belief, I am the son. Mm-hmm. Well, if on simplicity, if God's identical to all his intrinsic features, and he's identical to his belief that I am the father and the sons, I am the son. But those clearly those two beliefs, I am the father and I am the son, are not identical statements. Their propositional contents are quite different. So therefore, they just by definition can't be identical. So therefore, it's clear to me that the persons on social Trinitarianism cannot be simple. Yeah. Um, so as a result of this, this, these persons, while they are truly distinct and while they are the one God, They can't be numerically identical to one another. And that's why I tend to prefer to rule out that is of identity when we talk about, I want to say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, et cetera. Yeah, because that would imply that they all collapse together to the same thing. Right. And one of the reasons that we saw these unique ways in the the classical tradition, I'm wanting to say, this is why the medievals were quick to move to say, well, the persons are identical to these relations, the subsistent relations, the subsistent relations are just ways the divine essence exists, they are the ways that it are. It's because of this commitment to simplicity that's not unique to Thomas and the medievals. I mean, this goes back to the Cappadocians, it goes back to Augustine, and I think even before them. Mm-hmm. Now, it may not be as a strict or robust view of simplicity as what Thomas has, but there's definitely a view there that says that God is this indivisible thing. And I think that's why they're, they go to such an interesting metaphysical extents to have both simplicity and triunity in God, as we've seen as a very difficult move. But on social Trinitarianism, you cannot have the simplicity view of divine unity and be a social Trinitarian. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Well, it's not clear to me how you can be any kind of Trinitarian and accept simplicity because God will be tri-personal if you're a Trinitarian. And then that that's supposed to be intrinsic to God. So whatever that amounts to, it's going to be some kind of distinctions that are intrinsic to God. But I know our classicist brethren will think that that's all blasphemous, but 
Okay, so if you accept social Trinitarianism, then it looks like you have to reject simplicity. What other theological consequences do you argue here follow that if you're a social Trinitarian? Well, so the main one, and this is where in the paper I get into talking about particular models of God. And when I was writing this paper and I, and I got through the body and I talked about what divine attributes are consistent with social Trinitarianism, etc., you can have immutability, you can have impassibility, and you can have timelessness. You can have those things. You can't have simplicity. So I was getting to the end of this paper, and I'm thinking, so what's my big so what factor? Well, then it, as I started to think about it in terms of models of God, this is where it became clear to me. If you want to be a social Trinitarian that has the doctrine of the eternal relations of origin in the classical sense, that they are atemporal and causal relations, you have a single model of God with which you can operate from. Classical theism is one model of God you cannot have because classical theism is committed to the doctrine of divine simplicity, Mm -hmm. which, as we've said, social Trinitarianism can't have. So just by definition, classical theism is off the table. But we still have other options. And for the sake of most evangelical and Reformed Christians, I limit those options to neoclassical theism and open theism. Now, neoclassical theism, as the way our friend Ryan has defined it, and I find it to be a much more useful category than theistic personalism, which aside from being used primarily in pejorative ways, theistic personalism is just a vague and ambiguous term that doesn't really delineate anything unique about a particular model of God. So I've preferred this term neoclassical theism. So what neoclassical theism is, as Mullins defines it, it's a model of God that's going to deny at least one, though potentially all four of the classical attributes, the classical attributes being simplicity, immutability, and passability, and timeless eternity. So we could be a neoclassical theist and reject simplicity. So we're already committed to some kind of neoclassical model, but we're going to have to, in order to have the Darrow, we're going to have to have God being immutable. Well, we're going to have to have God being timeless, which is going to follow from his being timeless, that we're going to have to have God being immutable and impassable if he's timeless. But we can't have simplicity. So here's our neoclassical option. You know, you could theoretically, if you weren't committed to the Darrow, you could be a neoclassical theist that has immutability and timelessness, but decides they want to drop impassibility. I don't think that's a coherent move to make. Some might try to make that. Or you might say that God's immutable, but he's temporal. Or you might say God's temporal, but he's not immutable. Again, I don't think those are coherent moves, but some might try to do that. And for the sake of being you know, gracious, I'll just grant it for the sake of argument. You can have those. But you can't have those and have the Darrow. If you're going to have the Darrow, you've got to have a timeless God, which I do think it's going to follow, that you're going to have to have immutability and impassibility from that. Open theism won't work with this classical view of the Darrow because an open theist is just going to, by definition, be committed to God's being temporal and thus mutable and impassable. So, at the end of the day, the social Trinitarian, though they could be a neoclassical theist of various sorts or an open theist, the social Trinitarian who wants to have the Darrow is limited to a particular model of God, namely a neoclassical model that affirms immutability and passability and timelessness, but it's not going to have simplicity, which is why it's not going to be a classical model. And so really the social Trinitarian who wants the Darrow, that's their only option for a model of God. And that was when I realized, oh, that's provocative. That's my so what claim is that by wanting to have both social Trinitarianism and the Darrow, the social Trinitarian has really limited themselves 
to a particular model of God in ways that they may not be comfortable with. I mean, if I was a social Trinitarian and thought that, look, generation and procession, that's just central to Trinitarian tradition. Like, you can't be a Trinitarian and not have that. Then these consequences sound like an objection to being a social Trinitarian. Because I don't want to have impassibility, timelessness, and immutability foisted on me for the biblical reasons that we said. Mm-hmm. But that's not how you take it, right? This isn't all, hey, you don't really want to be a social Trinitarian, do you? That's not your point. No, that's not my point at all. My point was just to say, if you want to be that, here's what you're going to be committed to. Now, personally, since I am a social Trinitarian, being a social Trinitarian, I just don't see how classical Trinitarianism makes adequate sense of the New Testament witness concerning the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their relations to one another and their interactions with one another. The way they interact with one another seems to require something like social Trinitarianism. Uh, The New Testament witness also seems clear to me that they are distinct persons in this so-called modern sense of persons, that they are distinct centers of consciousness, action, will, love. Hence, we see the Son submitting to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I have another paper that's out with Theologica that talks about how Thomas wants to say that the Son submits to the Father. In Augustine, they say the Son submits to the Father only in his humanity, not in his divinity. But I talk about why that's problematic, because if Jesus of Nazareth and the Son are numerically identical, at least concerning the subject of the person, well, then it just is not clear at all how this single subject can will by one nature to submit and will by another nature to not submit. Now we have this single subject willing, even if it is by two distinct nature, but willing contradictories. Mm-hmm. which just goes against the whole classical view of the incarnation, which, as Thomas says, that the divine nature and the human nature of Christ work together in such a unified way that it's a single theandric act. But if they're willing contradictory things, that is, that is clearly not a single theandric act. So with this modern sense, I just don't see how that works with the New Testament. Uh, it seems to be clear that it is the Son as the subject, divine and human, who is submitting to the Father. So I think that there's ample biblical warrant for Trinitarians to prefer social Trinitarianism over Latin Trinitarianism. And resulting from that, I think there is a very good reason to reject classical theism. But I also think that the entire witness of Scripture is filled with great reasons to reject classical theism, namely all kinds of places, you know, where God defines himself. Even, you know, most people want to look to Exodus 3.14 as evidence for simplicity, when God says, I am, he identifies himself as being itself, that somehow this entails simplicity. It's a weird hermetic strategy to get there and some leaps being made. I don't follow because most Old Testament scholars I know of say, well, actually, the Hebrew more accurately would translate, I am who I will be. <laughs> so God, you know, defining himself as a God who has a future. Well, it seems to be a temporal God. Dr. Hollingsworth, you, you just have to understand that the the Septuagint has that as ha'on, and the Platonist is going to look at that as God being the one who is or being itself. You see sure. the Septuagint plus Platonism. Well, the Septuagint is helpful in some places, um, but <laughs> yes, unlike some of my uh, my Roman Catholic brethren, I'm not as convinced about the inspiration of yeah. the Septuagint. But I digress. In his earlier written book around 2010, 2011, I think, Uh, which Trinity, whose monotheism, Tom McCall actually agrees with my former point that social Trinitarianism is a much more straightforward reading of the New Testament, uh, and that this reading of the New Testament just fits better with social Trinitarianism than it does Latin Trinitarianism. 
And I think he's absolutely right there. Now, granted, I was not raised in either Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism. I was raised as a Baptist, and I was taught that, you know, sure, the Father, Son, Spirit are all God. And But when I read the New Testament, these are interacting persons, very similar to how you and I are interacting. That doesn't mean I'm reducing God to the ontological status you and I have. God still, I say, he's still necessary. You and I are not, I say, nor are we necessary. We're very contingent. So even though God might, the persons of God might interact with one another similar to how you and I do, that doesn't reduce God to the same ontological status as us creatures. So I don't think it infringes the creator-creature divide at all. So I, I think Tom McCall's right in that book. I, I've heard rumor that he doesn't necessarily agree with some of the points he's made in his earlier writings. I'll leave that for him to decide and say more officially. That's a rumor I've heard, but I at least agree with this early statement of his. Well, yeah. On the face of it, the father and son talk to one another and cooperate together, and the one submits to yeah. the other, and the one sends the other. So, I mean, these are just uh, they're, they're aspects of an interpersonal relationship straight up. Now, Keith Ward in his Christ and the Cosmos, he says that it's the human Jesus who is interacting with the Father in prayer. It's only the human Jesus that prays to the Father. It's not the divine Son. Yeah, well, I agree with that part. (laughs) And now, yeah, so (laughs) there you go. But now I think Ward's model of the Trinity is, I'm not really convinced how it's actual Trinitarianism personally. Yeah. Um, I follow McCall there. But... I don't think that's true. I think even on the face of it, that's a Jesus. I find problems there, you know, because it doesn't seem to be clear. It's just a human Jesus. When, when Jesus is praying to the father in John 17, he is talking about the glory I had with you from the beginning. He's talking about a pre-existence. Now for the sake of appeasing you, I won't say that that necessarily entails he is the one God, but even still, it seems that there's some sort of pre-existent person of Christ apart from the incarnation. Now, whether or not he has a beginning is neither here nor there, but he is referring in this prayer to some sort of glory and status he has with God prior to his entering into creation. So it can't be simply or merely a human Jesus that is having this conversation with the Father. But either way, it is clearly a distinct center of consciousness that has had two distinct centers of consciousness and action and love that are having this conversation, or else this conversation would just be a conversation, it would just be God thinking to himself which Ward himself says he wants to avoid and Hasker wants to avoid. So at least on any straightforward reading, if one is a Trinitarian, it seems that the New Testament is a much more straightforward reading uh, in favor of social Trinitarianism as opposed to Latin or cultural Trinitarianism. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Hollingsworth explains how he, as a Baptist, approaches the doctrine of the Trinity, as well as traditional speculations about eternal generation and eternal spiration. Dr. Hollingsworth, you don't go this far in the paper, but it sounds to me like your view is that if you're going to be a Trinitarian, the Bible should point you towards being a social Trinitarian. But then if you're going to be a social Trinitarian, 
it looks like you need to get rid of eternal generation and procession because you don't want these other consequences that will follow from it. Yeah, I don't take the paper that far. That is my personal view, though I would modify it slightly. I do think if you're a Trinitarian, I think the Bible does point us in the direction of social Trinitarianism. But I also would say it's the Bible, not necessarily social Trinitarianism, that points us to abandoning the processions. Mm. Because I just don't think the Bible warrants the doctrine of the processions at all. That's my personal take. Yeah. Now, again, for the sake of charity and argument, I give the social Trinitarian those options. But being a social Trinitarian doesn't commit you one way or the other. And this is evident in the literature about social Trinitarians. You know, you've got some like Yandel and Craig who both reject the processions, uh, yet they're social Trinitarians. But then you have some such as Swinburne and Hasker who are social Trinitarians, and they want the processions. They're kind of divided on whether or not we need that. My reason for saying, hey, maybe we should consider dropping the processions, it's actually for biblical reasons alone. It's actually not even motivated by my social Trinitarianism, even if you were a Latin Trinitarian, such as Leftow or Ward, I would still think you need to drop the processions because I just don't see the biblical warrant for that. Again, the only warrant I really see for having the processions at all is if one is part of an ecclesial tradition that claims allegiance to some sort of theological heritage of the church and its creeds and its and its councils. Yeah. But if you're not, if you're a Baptist, such as myself, then we don't have those kinds of commitments. Though some Baptists think that we should, such as Matthew Emerson and Luke Stamps, who've done some really interesting work there. I'm not as convinced as they are that we need this allegiance to a to the tradition as they do. Mm-hmm. In our theological method, I would put reason, and by reason I simply mean the laws of logic and, and sound reasoning, on the same level with tradition, if not a higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be quite honest, I think this is what the tradition did all along. It was not until later that we see a particular view of tradition enshrined as a as a dogmatic principle or a dogmatic condition. I think the early tradition was doing this all along, and the reason they made the moves that they did and adopted the particular metaphysical schemes they did was because this seemed to them what reason required. Yeah. So I think that was already kind of the precedent. But uh, I'm sure I just upset a lot of people by saying <laughs> that. But it's okay. I love those people. They're still our brethren. These are good Protestant points. I mean, I can't argue with them. I do think that in the 300s, and even in the time of origin in the 200s, there were not enough people pushing back against the widespread sort of eclectic Platonism that was about. Sure. I mean, in my view, before you had Christians saying that God is simple and timeless, etc., you had Neoplatonists or Platonists saying this about the good or the one, the ultimate reality according to Platonism. And... I think they thought they had to fit in with this grand prestigious tradition. And I think, I think it was a mistake. I mean, there were at the time people who didn't buy Platonism like Tertullian, like some of the dynamic monarchians. But by the time you get to the year 400, there's really an entrenched originism that just builds a lot of kind of platonic type stuff into the mainstream. And even though they later decided he was a bad guy, strangely, I mean, they're all originists, or so-called Aryan controversy. They're just different kinds of originists. I forget the author's name, but he wrote the essay on 4th century Trinitarianism in the Oxford Handbook of the Trinity. And he Uh he says the same thing, that, yeah, this this idea of this is going back to origin. We haven't talked about this podcast, and I haven't developed my my material on it yet, so I really can't talk about it much. 
but I think also too, there's a, a little appreciation for how much origin and the early processionists, as I'll call them, mm-hmm. they're not just relying on Neoplatonism for their views of simplicity. They're relying a lot on Neoplatonism for their views of generation, trying to make sense of this beginning of the New Testament, mm-hmm. which, as I've said, I think they've misunderstood already. But, you know, Plotinus has a lot to say about generation. Uh, Plato and Aristotle both have things to say about generation. Yeah. Um, but Plotinus has even more to say about it and how from the one emanates or generates the, the you know, the intellect or the, the world, soul, and nose mm-hmm. and the like. So, and I, I just don't think there's quite enough appreciation for not just how they're relying on some of this philosophy to do the best that they can, which again, you know, I think it's safe to say that there's a strong possibility if you and I existed in the fourth century, we might follow suit. And if that's the best philosophy at the time that we know, of, we might follow suit and say, yeah, this is where we need to go. But there have been advancements in metaphysics since the fourth century. Oh, yeah. And I think that uh, that they have been good advancements. You know, just because I say that there have been good, you know, contra Craig Carter and others, just because I say there have been good metaphysical advancements in the 20th century does not mean I'm a Kantian or a Hegelian. <laughs> you know, there are, there are contemporary and the wrong century, man. that aren't Kantian or Hegelian. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, but I, I digress there. But no, on the non-analytic side, those are, you know, that's modern philosophy for them. But, you know, for sure. the analytics, it's David Lewis and Dean Zimmerman and yeah, yeah. Chisholm and, and all these guys. Michael Lux and, and yeah. so many others. Yeah. But yeah, uh, E.J. E. Lowe, to, to mention the least of these, so mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. Saul Kripke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the list goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do it, you want to do it the best. So it's a human field of knowledge and it does advance very slowly with great difficulty and such that not everybody perceives it. Correct. It's not Correct. like physics or biology, but. But if one is a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Anglican and they do have these ecclesial allegiances to this tradition, then that's a different motivating factor. But as a, but at least as a Baptist and as a more and as other Protestant groups, I don't have those allegiances. Um, I won't necessarily claim sola scriptura because I think we do. We always use more than scripture to reason. Mm-hmm. But even in when the reformers said sola scriptura, what they had in mind was what I think. Following James Leo Garrett, I, I would mean by suprema scriptura. And if scripture, and this is where John Peckham and I are in large agreement, if we are really going to say that scripture is the supreme authority then it needs to, in some sort of practical sense, needs to stand in some relation to the tradition where it can correct the tradition. But Mm -hmm. if we say we need the tradition to properly read the scriptures, then functionally scripture and the tradition are on equal footing at that point. Because if you have to have the tradition to read scripture, then it's not clear how scripture could correct the tradition because you need that particular tradition to read the scripture. Yeah. It becomes this very vicious circle that I I don't think we ever escape. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure I'm infuriating more of my classical brethren. <laughs> yeah, and tradition can impose more constraints than people realize sometimes. There's a part of the first Vatican Council from the 1800s that I like to point out to my Catholic friends where it basically says that you're never going to be able to come up with a better formulation for these mysteries, which really kind of casts doubt on the whole analytic theology project. Why not understand this in this way, using this piece of metaphysics Look, they just said you can't improve on those formulations from medieval and ancient times. So what are you doing, Mr. Catholic analytic theologian? Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess we all tend to ignore the bits we don't like. 
Sure. <laughs> All right, Dr. Hollingsworth, thanks for talking with us. It's been really interesting. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. This week's thinking music has been the track Blue Notes by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.